Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. You never forget your first space shuttle launch. Zero and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. On the 8th of July, 2011... I stood a few kilometers away from Launch Pad 39A at Cape Canaveral in Florida as the space shuttle Atlantis got ready to take off on a mission to the International Space Station. I remember it was a cloudy, muggy day and the air was especially close, which you might expect from a summer morning at a rocket launch facility that's been built on a swampy marshland. But the atmosphere that day was also thick with anticipation from the tens of thousands of people, journalists like me, scientists, members of the public, and even some celebrities who'd all gathered at the Kennedy Space Center. Because although STS-135, as the mission was formally called, was the first time I saw the space shuttle launch, it was also the very last flight of the entire space shuttle program. Humans taking aim on the International Space Station. 40 seconds into the flight. The space shuttle hadn't been a perfect launch vehicle, but it had played a critical role in giving NASA and its astronauts access to low Earth orbit. One of its most celebrated achievements was the launch and subsequent repairs of the Hubble Space Telescope. The Space Shuttle also helped to launch most of the major components of the International Space Station. But after I watched Atlantis blast off from the humid Florida swamp 11 years ago, NASA no longer had a launch vehicle that could take people into space. Instead, with the Space Shuttle mothballed, the Americans had to buy seats on Russian rockets. And it wasn't until 2020 that NASA could once again use American rockets. This time, though, those machines were made by Elon Musk's SpaceX. In the past few years, SpaceX has led a group of rocket companies that are creating a brand new industry. Many of those firms have formed successful partnerships with NASA. But NASA itself never left the rocket game entirely. In the decades since Space Shuttle Atlantis took its final flight, the space agency has been working on the shuttle's successor. Next week, NASA will test its brand new rocket. Go for main engine start. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today, we'll be exploring the Space Launch System, or SLS, NASA's monstrous new rocket, which you're probably going to be hearing a lot more about in the years to come. This is the machine that's destined to take humans back to the surface of the moon. 
But in an era where the commercial space industry is flourishing, we'll ask whether NASA itself should really be developing such large, complicated and wildly expensive rockets. The agency plans to launch the 30-story tall Space Launch System rocket on August 29th. Now we are just hours away until NASA's biggest moon rocket ever built begins. NASA's Artemis 1 moon rocket has arrived at the Kennedy Space Center's launch pad less than two weeks ahead of its debut flight. They're ahead of schedule, except no one will be on board during the rocket's first mission. Instead, it will carry three mannequins into space, decked out in sensors to measure radiation, vibration. The next stop, the moon. NASA, after years of development, have just rolled out the SLS, the Space Launch System rocket, on this very old, very large crawler transporter to the launch site, ready to actually launch it, possibly by the end of the month, if everything works out. Scott Manley is a physicist who also runs a popular YouTube channel devoted to spaceflight and rocket science. This will be the first new NASA rocket in 40 years. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's huge, it's big, it's special. How important of a moment is this for NASA? Well, it's a very important moment because NASA doesn't have any other launch vehicles of its own. So there's a bunch of missions which you really need a rocket that is suitable to those missions. Most of the commercial missions are using smaller rockets or that aren't really designed for this. But yeah, this is this is the first step for NASA's return to the moon. So it's a small launch, but it's a big step. Now, before we start talking about the specifics, can you just describe for me what the SLS actually looks like? So the one that's on the pad right now is the first generation SLS, SLS Block 1A. It has a large orange tank and the orange is for the foam that covers the tank because that tank contains liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Strapped to either side of that, there are these large white solid rocket motors. And then above this tank, it sort of tapers down a little for the second stage and the Orion capsule on top. So at launch, you're going to light those main engines, they're going to bring them up to power to make sure they're ready to go, and then they turn on those big solid rocket boosters. It will ascend, head out eastwards across the Atlantic from Florida, and a couple of minutes into flight, those strap-on solid motors will peel off. And the core will then continue downrange, picking up speed until it's almost at orbital velocity. Then that core stage will drop off, the second stage will start up, and that is a much smaller rocket stage, but it's still burning liquid hydrogen and oxygen. So that'll boost it into orbit, and then later that can relight to send the Orion spacecraft and its service module out all the way to the moon. And eventually that'll swing around the moon, spend some time in space and come back to Earth for safe recovery. (laughs) 
So the SLS is very much a replacement or a successor to the space shuttle. How did it develop technologically? Well, technologically, SLS is what we would call a shuttle-derived launch system. It means it uses the technology, the engines, the boosters, and various other parts of the space shuttle and repackages them to build a rocket which has different properties. It's not recoverable. That's the main primary difference. And actually, the idea for shuttle-derived boosters goes back to, like, the 1970s when they were building out the early space shuttle. And they kept on coming back several times. And around 2005, this was in the wake of the Columbia disaster, in 2003, Columbia Space Shuttle, as it left the pad and flew into space, a piece of foam smashed its wing, and when it returned to Earth, the vehicle broke up, killing all the astronauts on board. You know, George Bush had basically said that Space Shuttle had to stop flying by the time it had finished building the space station. In 2010, the Space Shuttle, after nearly 30 years of duty, will be retired from service. Our second goal is to develop and test a new spacecraft, the Crew Exploration Vehicle, by 2008 and to conduct the first manned mission no later than 2014. And they launched a program to replace it called Constellation. Now, Constellation was very similar. Again, large, big orange tank in the middle, cluster of engines, solid rocket motors on the side. It was bigger than SLS. And, you know, Congress got behind that. But it was being built out very, very slowly. It was never going to hit its schedule on time. The only thing that was really getting anywhere was the Orion spacecraft. And in about 2010... After uh, Obama comes into office and they have this new idea for more privately funded commercial space launch capability, they wanted to cancel Constellation. Yes, pursuing this new strategy will require that we revise the old strategy. In part, this is because the old strategy, including the Constellation program, was not fulfilling its promise in many ways. That's not just my assessment. But in order to get the money for their private stuff, they had to offer those Congress people affected um, a sweetener. And so they came up with this slightly smaller SLS and would do many of the same things, but it would be a lot smaller, a lot easier. To conduct research on an advanced heavy lift rocket, a vehicle to efficiently send into orbit the crew capsules, propulsion systems, and large quantities of supplies needed to reach deep space. And developing this new vehicle, we will not only look at revising or modifying older models, we and that's how SLS came to being. It kept roughly the same level of funding. It just changed the goalposts, changed the targets. And finally, you know, 12 years later or thereabouts, it's finally ready to fly. You mentioned space shuttle-derived technology there. Um, but what does that mean exactly? I mean, does the SLS literally use the same engines as the space shuttle? So right now... The four main engines on that core stage literally flew on previous space shuttle missions. You can go and look them up and you'll see that each of these space shuttle engines would be reused from one flight to the next. They were excellent engines. They were fantastic. Some of these date to the early 1990s. And the boosters on the side, those are using segments from actual space shuttle boosters. They're longer. They're five-segment boosters rather than the four-segment that were flown on the space shuttle. There is, of course, huge numbers of improvements in terms of the technology used to build these giant tanks. They developed a whole new process for 
and welding together these tanks and making them rigid and lighter for what they are. There's new avionics and electronics. The engines have had their computers changed because, well, honestly, it's hard to get parts for the old style computers. But for the first few SLS launches, the main engines are all going to be engines that previously flew on the space shuttle. And only after, I think, mission number four are they going to have new engines that have been built in the 21st century. If there's engines that have flown in the space shuttle before and they go up, they're not reusable, right? So they're going to go. That's it. They, yeah, they are going to go out, burn up in a you know, blaze of glory, a Viking funeral, as we say, as the spacecraft will re-enter over the Pacific and burn up and leave a bunch of debris there. It is sad because we're never going to see these the best space shuttle engines, final generation, in a museum because they're all going to be launched into space. So you've talked about the SLS that's about to launch, but this won't be the only version of the SLS, will it? So the variant of the SLS, which is currently on the pad, is the very first one. It's a Block 1A. And when that launches, that will launch for three times. But after that, they're going to upgrade the second stage they're going to replace it with an entirely new upper stage that's four times bigger and allows them to carry more mass into space. After the eighth launch, they're going to have to switch over to new solid rocket motors because they're running out of shuttle parts for that. They basically improve the performance of those boosters by using new technologies that have since come onto the scene. And that'll bring its payload up to something like 130 tonnes to low Earth orbit. So 130 tonnes, how does that compare to other rockets? Uh, Let's say, for example, the Saturn V, which was the one that powered the Apollo moon missions. Well, you know, Apollo, if you work it out, it was like 150 tonnes to low Earth orbit. So this isn't quite as capable as Saturn V just yet. But there's a lot of other improvements along the way that have been made. And so you don't necessarily need to launch all this mass anymore. First of all, the Apollo was that size because it had to launch everything on one launch. These days, if you're sending people to the moon, which is the plan, you can send the spacecraft up to this orbit around the moon where it can meet the lander that has been launched on another spacecraft and then take that down. So you're splitting the mass requirement over multiple launches. But yeah, I think the Block 1 is 70 tons to low Earth orbit, which isn't that much bigger than the Falcon Heavy right now. However, it allows larger payloads than the Falcon Heavy ever could. The Falcon Heavy is SpaceX's heaviest rocket, and this thing can easily put something like 50 to 60 tonnes into orbit. The first test launch of the Falcon Heavy, of course, carried Elon Musk's first Tesla Roadster off into deep space to show that it was capable. Falcon Heavy is the biggest rocket in the world until SLS launches. Now, listeners might be thinking this all sounds a little bit familiar about SLS when you're describing it. I mean, last time we spoke to you, we were just going through the details of um, Elon Musk's Starship, which is SpaceX's giant reusable rocket. Um, How do the two compare, the SLS and Starship? Well, so in terms of size, SLS isn't as big as Starship. It doesn't have as much thrust. But what it's really good at is throwing stuff out to the moon, Starship, it's bigger and heavier, but because it's designed to be 100% reusable, it's only able to launch about 100 tons into low Earth orbit, and then it has to come back or it has to refuel. So where you're spending $2 billion a launch for SLS to throw all this stuff out into deep space and losing almost all of it. Starship, your theory, you're just paying for the fuel and maybe some quick maintenance between each flight. 
So that's the plan. It's obviously two radically different visions, and one is certainly driven by political considerations, whereas the other one is driven by commercial considerations. While the SLS might not be able to carry as much mass as SpaceX's Starship, it's undoubtedly impressive. And it needs to be, given what NASA plans to do with the rocket. The Space Launch System is a foundational asset for space exploration. It's going to be the backbone of long-term deep space exploration, and we expect it to yield just amazing scientific results. Sharon Cobb is the Associate Program Manager of the SLS at NASA. The capabilities of this rocket will send the first woman and the first person of color to the lunar surface. And this time, we're going to stay. There's just a tremendous amount of things that we can learn about living and working on the moon's surface. And then ultimately, our goal is to send humans to Mars. Can you just describe for me the architecture of the Artemis program, the mission to the moon? So the Artemis program is an incredible opportunity for us to learn how to live and work on the moon. And the space launch system will be the rocket that carries all of the equipment and the crew that we need to do that. There are a number of things that we need in order to be able to live and work on the moon. First of all, we'll need some infrastructure and support equipment on the moon to be able to support human life. We'll be sending landers and robotic missions first. And then eventually we'll have a gateway, which is almost like the International Space Station. It'll be an orbiting facility around the moon where the astronauts can return and gain all their equipment and have a a temporary habitat. So there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that's required to live and work on the moon. Now, over the past decade, uh, ever since the space shuttle went on its final flight in 2011, NASA has, of course, transported its astronauts to the space station using uh, the Russian space agency, using commercial partners like SpaceX, instead of using, obviously, its own vehicles. Did NASA see that as a problem, which is why the SLS, you know, is important? Well, when we look at space exploration, we look at it from the entire breadth of the capabilities that are out there. So it's been a tremendous partnership, both in the interim, having the Russian capability to take our astronauts to the space station, and now we have the commercial crew capability. And that will continue to be important as we start to explore the moon. There are many capabilities that those commercial rockets can help us with. However, when we're talking about doing long-term deep space exploration, there is not a capability out there in the world that compares with the capabilities of this rocket. And with the lower number of launches and the extreme amount of mass that we can lift with this rocket, um, you really reduce the risk associated with putting this much into space. When we're talking about competition, there's also competition for NASA within America now, uh, of course. The past decade has seen companies like SpaceX creating very capable rockets that can get payloads, including astronauts, up into space. So, you know, I guess some critics have asked, why has NASA persevered with developing the SLS when SpaceX's Starship, for example, is an equivalent powerful rocket, which is going to potentially be cheaper and reusable? Well, the SLS is the only vehicle that is designed and capable of carrying the Orion spacecraft to the moon. So there is a um, definitely an opportunity to utilize these large capacity 
vehicles in the future, but it's also important for us to, to have a sustainable and a long-term capability that, that we can count on that the nation knows is there to support space exploration. And just personally for you, when you see the first SLS rocket launch in the next few days, how, how are you going to feel about that? Because, you know, you've obviously worked on this for so long and it's been a long time coming. My excitement is just almost uncontainable at this point. Um, when I look at that rocket, I see the faces, I see the teamwork, I see all the people that have worked on this rocket. It, it's not just a mechanical rocket. It's about developing, it's about expanding our horizons, and it took an incredible team to get us here. And I'm just so excited for what that means, the unity that it took to put a mission like this together. So the SLS is meant to take humans back into lunar orbit. But last year, NASA announced that it would use SpaceX's Starship rocket as part of the human landing system. This is the bit of the Artemis program that would actually transport humans onto the moon's surface. NASA has chosen SpaceX to return us to the moon. I am so excited to partner with SpaceX in this fantastic endeavor for the Artemis suite of missions. So congratulations to the SpaceX team. The decision is very sensible. Starship will be much cheaper to launch than NASA's SLS rocket. But I can't be the only person wondering whether they might as well use Starship for the whole mission. From an innovation perspective too, wouldn't it have made more sense to spend taxpayers' money on some other NASA aims, rather than building a rocket that's more expensive and possibly less capable than the one built by SpaceX? That's all coming up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Babbage, we're exploring NASA's huge new rocket, the SLS, which is designed to take people and supplies to the moon. The SLS is being developed alongside promising commercial super rockets. The most prominent of those is SpaceX's reusable Starship, whose first orbital test launch is set to take place later this year. Now, we won't go into the details of Starship right here. For that, you can check out an earlier episode of Babbage from February the 15th called A Starship is Born. Commercial rockets have carried satellites and other equipment into space for decades. But it wasn't until 2020 that they transported American astronauts into orbit. Dragon, SpaceX, go for launch. So rises Copy. a new era of American spaceflight, and with it the ambitions of a new generation... Before that mission to the International Space Station, 
NASA had been buying seats on the Soyuz spacecraft built by Roscosmos, Russia's space agency. Because after the final flight of the space shuttle, NASA didn't have its own crew launch capabilities. As the space shuttle program came to an end, there had been some fierce debate in the American Congress about what should replace it. It was also debated by the candidates in America's 2008 presidential election. Right at the center of that story was Laurie Garver, an expert in space technology and policy, who went on to become the deputy head of NASA in 2009. In 2008, I found myself having worked for Hillary Clinton on her campaign, being courted by the Obama campaign. And in fact, the space shuttle retirement was pending. It had been planned since the 2004 and five response to the Columbia space shuttle accident. The president asked me if I thought we should extend the space shuttle program. He said he'd been lobbied by the Hill to do that. And I replied, no, I, I didn't believe we should. I had, of course, more information than he did on that topic. And the information I had from NASA people was not only, as the public knew, it was very expensive and risky to the astronauts' lives, but we had already let go third-tier suppliers. It was planned to retire in 2010. And we hoped we could fly two more missions, but we knew extending it would cost billions of dollars and still be a risky system. So I recommended against it. What was your preferred option for a launch system to um, succeed the shuttle? As I told the candidate at the time, the private sector had been operating space launches for decades. And we in this country had been doing it for 50 years. So I recommended the private sector could own and operate space transportation for astronauts like we were doing for satellites and spacecraft. To me, this had been something that in the 1980s and 90s, many companies had been wanting to get incentives from the government to develop systems to do this. We needed to lower the cost to get to space in order to take advantage of the unique perspective of low Earth orbit. And by 2008, the time was ripe. I'd say, that, I mean, that seems like ancient history now because obviously the, the modern private space industry in America is really blooming and there've been some great successes. But how did then the idea for SLS come along? If private industry was your recommendation, where did SLS come from? Well, NASA was developing a program called Constellation that was supposed to not only do lower Earth orbit astronaut transportation, but also lunar transportation. And ultimately, they were hoping to do a lander as well. That program was severely off track. However, billions of dollars in contracts had already been competed and let. So Congress had no intention of letting go those contracts for a larger vehicle. They didn't really want to transition to the commercial space sector for low Earth orbit transportation either. But that became a compromise that we in the Obama administration ultimately were willing to make to have NASA keep the Constellation contracts, build what became SLS and Orion, and eke out of a small percentage of those funds to start developing a commercial low Earth orbit human spaceflight transportation system. 
So, so the SLS came from the, the ashes of the Constellation program as a way to keep these contracts going, as you say. I just wonder, you know, it sounds like it's an important piece of politics then that it started. Oh, of course. You have contracts. You're going to fight in Congress to keep those contracts. And that's what industry did. SLS is sometimes called the Senate launch system. The Congress did not want to cancel the Constellation contracts. So they wrote legislation that forced NASA to use existing contracts. And there was especially four senators who lead the NASA funding committees who are from states where there are major jobs. And they wrote this legislation and they even said it would launch in 2016 for $10 billion. And here we are, we've spent $23 billion on the rocket, 43 if you count the capsule on top. And it's 2022 and it hasn't even launched its first test flight. But the truth is the NASA leadership was also on board, other than myself and a handful of political appointees who realized the old way of doing this was never going to deliver a sustainable, cost-efficient, or even effective program. Uh, By taking longer, you make more money each year. So the incentives are reversed of what they should be for really successful programs. Now, commercial spaceflight did happen in that time, even though it was a small amount of money, as you say, from the beginning, it's done really well, um, SpaceX and others. And now we're at the stage where one of those partners, SpaceX, seems to be building an even bigger rocket than SLS, which is the Starship. What, what are your thoughts when you compare something like Starship to something like SLS uh, in terms of, you know, the, the future of space travel and going to the moon and stuff? The reality is that there's no comparison. And SpaceX has exceeded even my very lofty expectations. Low Earth orbit transportation was something I thought the private sector could do. They've delivered, Boeing is about to. If you look at the cost differential for Starship, the government hasn't been putting in money until just recently because they gave SpaceX the contract for the lunar lander. So for basically no money, the Starship is a reusable two-stage launch vehicle larger than the space launch system that the public here in the United States paid over $20 billion for. When it launches, the Starship is estimated, I think, to cost in the less than 100 million range the SLS is going to, by NASA's own IG's estimate, cost $4 billion to launch. It has no reusable technology. So you throw away that $4 billion every time, and that's on top of the $23 billion. In addition, you cannot launch an SLS more than once every two years. NASA's hoping at its best to get one a year. The Starship is at its best supposed to launch twice a week. I think most people feel like twice a month would be much more likely at no cost to the taxpayer for development. These are not comparable. And yet NASA continues and Congress to say you must develop this, our very own rocket based on very old technology. And that's competing with the private sector. And yet SpaceX persisted. Blue Origin persisted as well and has developed their own heavy lift, partially reusable launch vehicle. Now, NASA has actually decided to use Starship as part of the Artemis missions that will go back to the moon. 
I just wonder why they've decided to do that when they're also developing SLS as well. I mean, is it that there are some cooler heads inside the agency that realise that sometimes you just have to go with whatever's cheapest and best rather than whatever you've been told to do by politicians? Well, this is a fascinating element of this new Artemis program. My understanding is that although there were three finalist competitors for the lunar lander, the cost that SpaceX was offering to do this to the government was less than half what the competitors were. And the Congress had not given NASA the budget that would have allowed them to select any of the others, much less two competitors, which was their preferred mode of selection. So SpaceX must have performed very well on the contract, but they also came in at a price point that NASA could afford. And will the public really allow NASA to keep spending billions a year on a system that will eventually be entirely redundant to Starship if it becomes operational, which it must in order to fulfill the government NASA's contract? So it's it's fascinating to me to watch. And I think we're just working through a transition and it is yet to be seen how it'll play out. In the conversation we've been having so far, we've been quite critical of SLS. But, you know, of course, you were the deputy administrator of NASA when the program was launched. There must be some things about it that you're excited about. I mean, well, what do you sort of look forward to in the, in the coming launches that NASA is doing? Um, I am conflicted because, of course, the NASA team is amazing. And the people who worked on this vehicle, thousands of them for more than a decade now, deserve to have a successful test flight and launches in the future. The fact that this was not designed by the leadership of which I was a part to be sustainable is, of course, very frustrating to me. I hope that the transition to the private sector can happen in a way that allows us to keep advancing in space. I would hate for either there to be problems on SLS or the public to react to these high costs and poor early decisions that created the rocket to say, oh my goodness, why why would we be supporting this program at all? I love NASA. I love NASA's mission. I feel like going back to the moon will be a majestic and important element of our future. It should not come at a cost as high as it is because of these decisions made over a decade ago. And You know, people have called this the Frankenstein rocket. It has cobbled together past parts of past programs. And that was sold to the American public as it was going to be cheaper to do it that way and take less time. And the opposite was true. I just wonder, NASA has become known for its big blockbuster projects that inevitably end up being over budget and late. I mean, just recently, of course, Uh, Everyone's been talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which is another massive NASA project that's very late and overexpensive. But once the the pictures started coming in, I think people sort of forgot about the problems and saw how amazing this machine was. And I just wonder if, given all the problems that are being overextended and over budget and things, you know, could the public appetite at some point decline for these massive, grand projects? Um, Could SLS be the sort of the last one of them for NASA? Oh, I would not equate the SLS with the James Webb telescope. First of all, one SLS, it launches something and thrown away. This is infrastructure. Uh, You know, this is the truck. Um, It's not the destination. The Webb telescope, yes, because of similar kinds of challenges, but mainly technical challenges, 
cost much more and took much longer. Let's think now about you have the availability of a starship to launch something of the capability and size of Webb Telescope. You could do that for dramatically less funding today because a lot of what Webb was challenged to do was shrink its mass, get as much power as you could in the smallest possible vehicle because we were constrained by launch vehicles. When that constraint is lifted because of innovation, NASA can be at the cutting edge of driving hundreds of web telescopes. This is the true value of the government investing. And we should not be trying to do the same thing over and over just because we want to, because we used to do it. Perhaps the story of the SLS, then, is one of a missed opportunity from NASA. Who knows what other technology the agency could have developed or what science it could have done if it had turned its attention and money away from the rocket-making business more than a decade ago. On the other hand, maybe the SLS saga has also helped the space agency, creating a shift in the way that NASA will operate in the future. To make sense of it all, I'm joined by Tim Cross, an editor here at The Economist, who's been reporting on the SLS since its inception. Tim, welcome to the show. We've heard that the SLS has been important politically in America, but does that actually make it worthwhile? I think if you look at it today, it's very hard to argue that it does. I mean, as you say, you know, this thing was political from the start. It was designed to protect a set of jobs in a, in a certain part of the country. But if you actually look at it now from an engineering point of view, and, and you know, ultimately that's what you have to get right, it has a very direct rival in SpaceX's upcoming Starship rocket. And Elon Musk thinks he can launch Starship for $10 million a pop. Now, the estimates for the SLS sort of start at $2 billion a pop and go up from there. Elon Musk doesn't have a perfect track record of always meeting his goals, but he's got, say, $1.99 billion of headroom here. Now, looking at it from an innovation perspective, let's look at what the SLS has achieved in terms of technology. I mean, has it been a catalyst for innovation and technological development at NASA and beyond? I think in a sense, you know, if you spend that much money on something, you're going to do some interesting technical things. But I think if you zoom out and look at it in the round, this is basically a way to reuse a bunch of old space shuttle components. So, you know, the SLS, broadly, I think it's an iteration on technology from the 1980s, but it is ultimately technology from the 1980s. Do you think that there's something to be said about the changing influence that NASA has on the field of rocket engineering and space in general? I mean, has the focus shifted towards the commercial sector now pretty much in that area? It has. And in fact, you could argue that the focus started to shift in the mid 2000s when NASA first decided it wanted to try and midwife this sort of startup led new space buccaneering kind of private industry thing. And it did that partly because it was frustrated with what it was getting out of the old kind of incumbent aerospace companies. And I think since then, there's been a running battle both within NASA and between NASA and the White House and Congress and so on about whether this is the right way to go. And I suppose we should say, you know, sitting here now in 2022, looking at it, it seems very hard to argue that the SLS is the solution to any meaningful problem. But you could argue that back when they first decided they were going to build it in 2010, you know, it wasn't clear that SpaceX would succeed. It wasn't necessarily clear that these sort of new space companies were the future. And so you might have argued for it on a kind of, let's stick with what we know. If we want to get back to the moon, we've done it before, we know how we did it, let's just do that approach again. 
I think by now, though, it's getting harder and harder to sort of justify its existence. And I think within Congress especially and within NASA, the balance of power is shifting. So I think the more that the new space industry succeeds, the more that people think it can succeed. So you're charged to be saying that the SLS was kind of an insurance policy in case the, the new market for rockets didn't work out. And actually, in the intervening period between you know, the mid-2000s and now, the, the market really has started to work, at least for rocket engineering. And, and who, who knows where that goes. But do you think that this is the last time we're going to see NASA building a giant new rocket? I think so. Okay, so Starship hasn't actually flown yet, but um, you know Jim Bridenstine, who used to be a NASA administrator, he said, he was very quickly you know, slapped down for saying it, but he said, we could probably go back to the moon with Falcon Heavy, which is an existing SpaceX rocket that you know has flown several times. It has a flight record. But I mean, having said that, we should say you know the, the government has never really been in the business of building rockets itself. It's always commissioned these private firms, whether that's Boeing or Martin Marietta, which older listeners may remember they actually built the lunar module. But I think the model of doing that has changed. You know, it used to be these cost plus contracts where you just say, hey, how much do you think it will cost to build a giant rocket? OK, fine, we'll pay you that plus 10 percent or whatever. This idea that you can have these scrappy startups, you can set a fixed price and that there's a whole load of kind of innovation left to do in rocketry that can push the price down. I think now that all that's proven to be true, I can't see any reason for the government ever to go back to the old model. That doesn't mean that the government doesn't have useful things to do in space. You know, if you want, for whatever reason, to send humans back to the moon or send them on to Mars, that's something where there's no obvious kind of commercial benefit to doing it. So who else other than the government is going to pay for that? If you want to do really cutting edge science, if you want to, to launch things like the James Webb Space Telescope, which we've talked about before, or a giant sort of space going exoplanet observatory or something like that, again, you will need the government to pay for that. But I think that old model of building rockets I can't really see any good engineering reason or any good kind of financial reason why you would go back to that at this point. That doesn't mean there aren't sort of expedient political reasons to do with with protecting jobs and all the rest. But I think those are essentially the only reasons left. Unless Starship never works. Unless Starship doesn't work, which, you know, to be fair, we can't discount. But on the other hand, you know, SpaceX has a pretty strong track record at this point. OK, Tim, thanks very much. Thanks, Alok. Our thanks also to Scott Manley, Sharon Cobb and Laurie Garver. And thank you for listening to Babbage. To read more on the space launch system as it prepares to go into orbit and the Artemis lunar program that it will facilitate, check out Tim's reporting this week in The Economist. You can get your best introductory offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And if you want the inside story on the genesis of the SLS, you can read Laurie Garver's own account in her new book, Escaping Gravity. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design this week by Saul Rivers. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, but dreaming of a trip in a giant new rocket, this is The Economist.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.